Hello and welcome to the Spine Nerve Podcast. My name is Dr. Brian Hoves. And my name is Dr. Nicholas Carvelis. And we're going to go back to basics again today. And we're going to be talking about something that is extremely common in our culture and society, uh, patient population, and likely is probably going to get more uh, common as the next 10 to 15 years progresses, because as everybody is aware, we are facing a, an aging population. And I think that's the reason why uh, our field has actually been such an interesting field to be a part of uh, as we're going forward. And so we're going to be talking about um, lumbar spondylosis, specifically thinking about ways uh, that that spondylosis or arthritis or degenerative changes, how people like to talk about it, uh, really impacts our patients. Um, but before we get there, once again, just want to thank everybody for listening and paying attention. Um, thank you for reaching out and sending your feedback. We really do appreciate it. And anything that you guys uh, have more questions about or would like for us to uh, lean towards in the future, uh, we would appreciate and hearing anything from you. Um, but without further ado, uh, Dr. Carvelis, could you please get us started on some lumbar spondylosis? Yeah. So as Dr. Hovez mentioned, uh, you know, the primary talking, uh, the primary topic today is going to be uh, lumbar spondylosis with the primary pain generator thought to be uh, uh, facetogenic pain. And as we know, especially um, as we go through life, uh, and we're dealing with issues, uh, pathology coming from the spine, um, it's typically going to be a multifactorial uh, process in terms of what's causing the uh, overall disease process, the clinical presentation. But part of our biggest um, job when we are evaluating the patient and working on the optimal uh, treatment um, is to find that primary pain generator, because um, that's going to be allow us to really uh, uh, make sure we create the best possible uh, treatment plan for the patient. And so the major things that we wanted to cover today in terms of uh, lumbar spondylosis with the primary pain generator being facetogenic pain is the uh, definition of, of that, uh, the epidemiology, uh, a review of some of the pertinent anatomy, uh, the typical clinical presentation, how to approach the diagnosis, and then the treatment. And we'll try to go through that fairly concisely and uh, ultimately, when we do our uh, journal club and case presentation, we'll probably go into more detail in regards to uh, treatment of this. Um, so starting with definitions, so uh, I think a reasonable definition for lumbar facetogenic pain in the setting of spondylosis is a painful disease process originating from any structure integral to both the function and configuration of the lumbar facet joints, including the fibrous capsule, uh, synovial membrane, hyaline cartilage uh, surfaces, and bony articulations. And that brings up a point that uh, the facet joints are a true uh, synovial joint, uh, which we'll get into obviously when we go over the anatomy. Um, so that's our definition. Now, in terms of the epidemiology, if you look at the studies, there's a like a lot of our chronic pain uh, disease processes, and especially when it comes to the spine, there is a huge range there, and we're continuing to work on optimizing these statistics. Um, part of it comes from, you know, who is doing the study, uh, what's their uh, methodology in terms of making the diagnosis? Are they making the diagnosis based on the uh, uh, clinical exam and clinical presentation? Are they making the diagnosis based on interventional procedures? And if they are, doing interventional procedures, how exactly are they doing that? So bottom line is there ends up being a huge variability there. Um, uh, if you look at uh, some of the larger studies, 
Um, some studies do document a 4.8% um, uh, uh, incidence of or prevalence of uh, facetogenic pain um, versus others as high as 50%. But I think if you look at the majority of the studies done by interventional spine uh, uh, primary investigators or interventional pain uh, primary investigators, the um, statistics tend to be around 15% of chronic low back pain being predominantly due to uh, facet pathology. Uh, like I said, we know there's going to be multiple contributors ultimately when we get to this uh, uh, situation where we are having the degenerative cascade of the spine. But in terms of finding that primary uh, or significant um, uh, contributor to the pain, about 15% uh, being predominantly due to facetogenic pain. Yeah. And that's the pain that, you know, as we, I kind of referenced earlier, our, our population is coming to a point where over the next, you know, five to 10 years, we're talking about this extremely large uh, increase in the percentage of the population over 65, uh, the percentage of population over 80. And so as we're thinking about these degenerative changes that do happen in the spine for everybody, uh, we expect that that's going to continue to be a very large contributor uh, going forward. Yeah. So uh, moving to the uh, pertinent anatomy. So as we uh, brought up previously, the facet joints are true uh, synovial joints. Um, so, uh, and, and this is kind of specifically, if you're going to be doing these interventional procedures, just keeping in mind that these are obviously small joints and they typically uh, hold about one to 1.5 uh, uh, milliliters of fluid. Uh, like I said, obviously that comes into play if you're thinking about intervening therapeutically upon these joints, but uh, uh, these synovial joints obviously have a synovial membrane and they also have uh, hyaline cartilage surfaces and then this fibrous capsule. And one important an, an anatomical thing about this fibrous capsule is that this capsule has uh, a, a quite a bit of uh, nociceptive nerve endings, as well as interestingly, uh, sympathetic uh, nerve endings. And we've talked um, uh, a great deal about how the sympathetic nervous system can contribute to the chronic pain picture. So I just thought that those were uh, important and, and uh, interesting anatomical facts is that there is quite a bit of nociceptive uh, receptors in the uh, fibrous, um, uh, fib uh, fibrous capsule of the of the facet joint, as well as these uh, sympathetic nerve endings. Yeah. And I think that the capsule, which we're not going to get too far into today, we're obviously focusing on uh, spondylosis and that in reference to uh, facet arthropathy, uh, but the capsule plays a big factor when we think about other pathologies of uh, the facet joints, you know, mainly when we think about things like whiplash and things along those lines. And so, you know, we're not, that's not our focus today. Uh, but just as a, a reminder that that capsule does play a significant role in um, some very specific uh, pain pathologies. Yeah. And uh, so finishing up with the uh, discussion regarding the anatomy, anytime we're thinking about the anatomy of the spine, um, it's critical that we know that the basic anatomical unit of the spine is going to be that uh, a three joint complex, which is going to be obviously composed of the intervertebral disc itself, and then the paired uh, uh, facet joints or zygopophyseal uh, uh, joints. Um, and the orientation of those uh, uh, joints in the lumbar spine becomes critical because uh, uh, typically um, when 
when we think about the orientation of the facet joints in the lumbar spine, um, as you get to the lower facet joints, the four, five, and the five, one, which we know uh, from studies that the majority of the stress, especially from a flexion extension standpoint, is going to go through those four, five, and five, one joints. Some studies showing 80 to 90% of that flexion extension occurring at those joints, which is why when both on imaging as well as on exam, and when we're doing our treatments, those joints tend to be our primary targets uh, and tend to be the primary culprits in terms of uh, causing pathology uh, uh, for the patients. Um, but as we get to those four, five, and five, one joints, the joints become more uh, coronally oriented uh, in contrast to being more sagittally oriented um, higher up in the lumbar spine. And the reason that this uh, becomes important is because when we have situations uh, where we've actually, uh, when you've looked at uh, individuals who have more sagittally oriented um, uh, facet joints at the four, five, and five, one joint, that actually is a risk factor or predisposes them to the development of degenerative spondylolisthesis and ultimately um, a debilitating pathology for that patient. Uh, Can you take a, a second to uh, define spondylolisthesis for us, uh, just for those that are listening and may not know what that means? Yeah, and so listhesis simply meaning that when we look at the alignment of the spine, rather than that uh, alignment that you know we uh, all have in our uh, teens and twenties, um, uh, that's nice and in in line in terms of each vertebral segment up, up upon the other, um, with listhesis. Um, uh, due to typically what we're talking about here in terms of uh, spondylolisthesis in this setting, typically is going to be degeneration. So the degenerative cascade of the spine with the uh, disc starting to degenerate and then ultimately uh, uh, placing more stress on the facet joints themselves and ultimately leading to movement of one level over the other. Um, and obviously there's gradations for that, but the bottom line is that now each vertebral body is not sitting directly on top of it, uh, itself, but there is some slippage or movement there, um, uh, which we term listhesis. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, uh, you know, an another analogy that I like to use with patients is, you know, if you have a stack of books and they're all stacked neatly on top of each other uh, because somebody pays a lot of attention to how that goes, uh, it looks nice. Or, but if you just kind of push a couple of the books forward so that they're not uh, directly on top of each other, I think it paints a very simple uh, picture of what lysesis means. It's not not aligned the way that you wanted to. Um, yeah, sorry. Yeah, and uh, so just to wrap up, you know, we in terms of talking about um, the alignment of the joints and why that's so critical. That it's so critical because that is the uh, the primary function of these facet joints. Um, is really to limit the movement of the spine uh, in, in certain planes and to allow movement uh, in functional planes. Um, there is some a role that facet joints play in terms of loads, including axial load, but as we've talked about in prior podcasts, that's predominantly through the intervertebral disc in terms of uh, taking on those loads. And it's the facet joints, facet joints uh, job to allow movement in certain planes, but then to protect for movement in other planes. Yeah. For a deeper dive in that, uh, please reference the uh, golf podcast of uh, last spring. Yeah. So uh, moving to the uh, pathophysiology of uh, facetogenic pain in the setting of uh, spondylosis. So um, um, more infrequently is this going to be a, uh, a you know a sun onset of uh, facet pathology um, uh, when you look at uh, uh, pain due to uh, facets the overwhelming majority of what you're going to see clinically is going to be 
um, facetogenic pain due to uh, repetitive uh, stress uh, or repetitive um, uh, microtrauma uh, in, in the chronic setting. So, and we'll talk about this when we get to the clinical presentation, but typically when patients are describing this, it's going to be an insidious onset. Uh, they're not going to be able to give you a specific uh, time when this really started, but, uh, you know, gradual onset uh, that has worsened over time. Um, that repetitive strain and trauma that uh, can occur ultimately leads to uh, some pathologic changes, which include increased uh, fluid in the facet joints themselves, which is then going to lead to uh, distension of the capsule, which we already talked about how any stress or strain on that capsule that's full of uh, uh, nociceptive uh, nerve endings uh, it can then lead to obviously persistent firing. And um, going back to some of our other uh, podcasts where we talked about uh, some of the therapies for axial low back pain. Uh, and, and I bring this up because when we're thinking about the uh, pathophysiology of uh, facet pain, there is a significant component to uh, the peripheral and sensi central sensitization that ultimately occurs. And so when we talked about things like peripheral nerve stimulation, which can have a positive impact on that, um, it goes back to what's the underlying mechanism. And, you know, with this chronic repetitive uh, strain and microtrauma to the facet joints uh, that uh, can occur over time, um, like I said, Yes, we get the inflammation, uh, uh, increased inflammatory markers, and we get that uh, increased fluid in the joints and the uh, chronic stress on the joints. But um, when that really becomes a problem is the when that's persistent and continues to fire and starts to become more ingrained uh, in our uh, in our nerves and our nervous system. Yeah. So. Um, the, uh, uh, the other thing I did want to talk about here as well is that um, the, uh, in addition to the uh, distension um, that uh, uh, can occur that leads to the firing of the nociceptive neurons, that, that distension can also um, start to involve certain points uh, of the facet joint capsule, including the articular recesses, which um, especially when we start to have degeneration of the spine um, is very in very close proximity to the nerve root. Um, and so it's not uncommon that uh, as facet joint um, a disease progresses, that there can be some level of irritation or even compression of the uh, exiting nerve root, um, especially, like I said, if that foramen is already narrowed by facet hypertrophy and other degenerative changes of the spine. Um, and so uh, uh, like I said, not uncommon, not only for the facet joint itself to have somewhat of a referral pattern, which we'll talk about in a moment, but uh, that facet joint pathology can ultimately lead, lead to nerve root irritation, inflammation, and compression, which obviously is going to cause somewhat of a radicular referred pattern as well. Um, the last thing I'll mention in terms of uh, pathology here is that the facet joint um, uh, irritation uh, can commonly lead to a reflex uh, spasm of the uh, paraspinal musculature. So uh, uh, this becomes important, I think, too, when, when um, we're talking to patients about how we're going to target their pain, because um, you know, they, they may feel their pain kind of up and down the lumbar, even thoracal lumbar spine. Um, and so <laughs> it's not uncommon. I, I'm sure Dr. Hovis experienced this, too, you know, when we're uh, telling even when we're doing the procedure and or telling patients where we're going to target the procedure, they're like, they'll be like, no, but my pain is, you know, not just there, it's up and down here. And that's where it's important to educate them that uh, uh, true and, and yes, and we'll keep our mind open to other diagnoses. But, you know, based on your symptoms, your exam, your imaging, we believe that 
this four, five, and five, one facet joint, uh, uh, you know, is is like we talked about chronically um, having repetitive strain and, and microtrauma, and uh, there's increased fluid there. There's uh, increased uh, in inflammatory markers there. Um, that's leading to pathology, including this reflex. Uh, muscle pain and spasm, and especially when that muscle pain and spasm is chronic, um, uh, the patient can really start to feel pain kind of up and down their mid to low back, um, but letting them know we're trying to get to the root cause of that. Yeah. I think it's really important that we always emphasize, and I know that you, if you listen to our podcast, you've heard us say this, you know, by the time most of these patients make it to us, uh, by the time a patient has severe enough, you know, spondylosis and degenerative cascade that, you know, the facet joints have hypertrophied, that, you know, their, their discs have flattened, their muscles are spasming. You know, this is chronic multifactorial pain. Yes, we believe in many of these cases that the facet joints themselves are the primary cause of the pain, but they do have pain that is encompassing many other factors. Um, and it is very common for, you know, pain not to be just purely one factor. Uh, that's the, that's the only thing causing pain. Yeah. Yep. And I just wanted to bring up one last study, um, because I think it's kind of an important study when we think about uh, understanding and counseling patients on the natural degenerative cascade of the uh, spine. Um, because like I brought up, unless it's a, a rare situation with an acute injury to the facet joint itself, typically uh, we're going to be dealing with um, uh, degeneration and loss of structural integrity um, uh, of the spine itself. And, and um, the point I wanted to make is specifically, usually it's the disc degeneration that is going to be present and precedes the uh, facet joint degeneration. And this was kind of demonstrated through multiple studies, but I thought uh, one study I wanted to bring up was the study by uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Fujiwara and his colleagues in uh, 1999 that found, essentially they looked at uh, a, a large number of uh, imaging, obviously advanced imaging MRI studies. And what they found was that uh, facet degeneration was rarely uh, uh, present without disc degeneration. Um, and typically it was more pronounced when there was more advanced disc degeneration. And so essentially, taking that data and synthesizing it, they came to the conclusion that usually uh, disc degeneration is typically gonna, going to uh, precede uh, facet arthropathy. Yeah. So uh, now just wrapping up real quickly in terms of the uh, clinical presentation, as well as the uh, treatment for this. And like I said, we'll, we'll probably dive more into the nuances of treatment with our uh, uh, coming up discussions. But you know, when we think about the uh, uh, common clinical presentation, um, as we talked about in other discussions, we always want to think systematically about it. What's the location? What's the quality? The radiation? The timing? The what's making it better? What's making it worse? What's the associated symptoms? So, in terms of localization of this, um, oftentimes the patient is going to be predominantly reporting axial low back pain. But like we brought up. Uh, you know, that you can have that nerve root irritation, you can have the referral pattern of the facet joint itself. And so, um, you know, the referral pattern of facet joints has been uh, uh, studied um, uh, quite a bit, um, in, including with um, uh, procedures where you artificially, uh, granted artificially, um, uh, distend the facet joint capsule and map that out and or you uh, anesthetize the facet joint and then map out where the uh, improvement in the symptoms occurred. And so with the combination of those studies, you can start to get a sense and, and bottom line is, again, there's quite a bit of variability and, and 
as we've talked about, um, there's definitely flaws in terms of, you know, okay, are, when you're artificially uh, inducing this um, capsule uh, distension, is that truly going to represent what happens um, uh, naturally or uh, in a patient? But, you know, with understanding the limitations of this, some of the uh, common uh, referral patterns, especially for those uh, lower lumbar facet joints is going to be uh, referral of pain into the thigh and especially the um, uh, posterior lateral uh, thigh is a, a common uh, place for that lo lower lumbar facet joint pain to radiate. Yeah. I, I, you know, one of the things that I hear most commonly from patients uh, is, you know, that the, the pain is in their low back and it kind of radiates across the low back, kind of like a band. Like it's, it's amazing how I remember hearing that in residency and one of our attendings said, oh yeah, it's like a band across your back. I'm like, oh, that's a, it's an interesting way of describing it uh, as if I kind of, you know, thought she was making it up. And then uh, you go through it over year, over years. And I mean, that's, it's a very consistent way that people describe it. It's like, yeah, it's just, it, I have this aching band right across my, my low back, right around my belt line. Mm -hmm. um, it, you know, and then like Dr. Carvel has brought up, you know, it definitely can have some radiation, you know, into the buttocks down towards the, the posterior lateral thigh. Um, generally speaking, not below the knees when we're thinking about, uh, about those, those joints in the back. Yeah, exactly. To Dr. Hovis's point, it's pretty rare. There's a few documented cases, you know, again, understanding the limitations of, of anesthetizing that, those structures and inducing, uh, artificially inducing. There's some, you know, cases of the pain going as low as the leg or the, or the foot and leg meaning you know, the calf in contrast to the thigh. But for the most part, it's going to be that thigh and the posterior lateral thigh for our usual culprit joints of the four, five, and five, one. So Dr. Hub has also brought up the pain kind of going across the back. And I think that's a good point too, because uh, some things that would lead you to start to uh, be suspicious of facet pain would be um, when the patient's reporting pain, that's not exactly midline, which may make us start to think about other pathology, maybe a discogenic type of uh, presentation more so. Um, but when the pain really lateralizes out to the side, uh, uh, that should raise some thought process in terms of uh, facet facetogenic type of pain. Yeah. What other things uh, do you usually hear from patients or do patients usually kind of talk about when we're, we're talking about this, right? So we talked about that aching pain, you know, we have pain diagrams uh, for our new patient intakes or actually for every patient as they come in to visit us. Um, and X is aching. Uh, and generally speaking, if we're thinking about this kind of lumbar spondylosis with facetogenic pain, uh, you know, patient will draw X's just right across their, their low back, right around the waist. Um, I, I think that's a very common thing that I see. What other things do you hear from patients? No, I absolutely agree. I think that probably uh, uh, one of the most common reports I hear from a patient when, when they're talking about, and I, and I suspect that it's going to be predominantly facetogenic is they'll tell me, just like you said, when I ask them to describe the pain, they'll say they have, uh, you know, uh, persistent aching pain that's sharp with exacerbation. So, you know, it's kind of this baseline, uh, ache that's, that's with them the majority of the, uh, the majority of the time, but then it can get sharp with exacerbation. Um, uh, in addition, it can be really severe, um, when they're kind of in a, uh, bent, a uh, prolonged bent for uh, posture, which makes sense because when we look at the studies demonstrating what positions put the facet joints on stretch, um, being in that kind of prolonged, uh, kind of um, partially bent, uh, flex lumbar flexed forward position can put a lot of stress on the capsule. Um, and then also, uh, if they're sedentary, you know, for a while. So, for example, if they sleep 
all night and then they go to get up um, you know, before those joints really start to produce their synovial fluid again, um, and or if they're sitting for a long time, then go to get up. Um, those are common complaints in terms of it can be really uncomfortable um, with that initial going from lying to, to sitting to standing or that prolonged sitting to standing. And then as they move around a little bit, it can potentially get a little bit better uh, before it gets worse again with too much activity. Um, so uh, yeah, those are some of the more common things I've, I've heard. And now in terms of the, uh, uh, the diagnosis of this, so the, the key point here is that ultimately um, it is a combination of the, uh, uh, the clinical history, your exam, and then diagnostic blocks. And, and there's, you know, at this point, um, uh, there was a recent consensus paper that really kind of did a good job of addressing this that we'll include in, in the show notes. But the overall uh, strongest recommendation is to consider doing medial branch blocks in contrast to putting medicine intraarticular itself. And there's uh, various reasons for that. We won't get into too much detail here, but the bottom line is it's really that combination of the history, your exam, and then the diagnostic blocks, uh, really two uh, diagnostic blocks with greater than 80%, although again, you'll see 50 and 80% out there, but really we're looking for 80% um, uh, uh, improvement in their typical low back pain with the diagnostic block with local anesthetic. Um, when we're thinking about the physical exam to date, although this has been extent, because this is such a common pathology, um, it has been extensively studied, but to date, there's no pathognomonic finding on physical exam for facetogenic pain. That being said, uh, if you have someone that comes in and they report axial low back pain that's not predominantly midline, but uh, uh, radiates out to the side, and you have significant uh, tenderness to palpation over the facet joints, those things have been shown to be uh, mildly uh, positively associated um, in, in terms of leaning towards. So that's definitely at a bare, bare minimum, something you should be thinking about if you're going to make that diagnosis on history and exam is that you have palpated over the uh, lumbosacral paraspinal area. And you do feel like that there is increased tenderness to palpation over those facet joints. Yeah. And one of the things that you'll also see sometimes in guidelines, when we're thinking about, you know, diagnosing and then being able to provide interventions for people, uh, is the facet load. And, you know, I think we probably fall along the same lines where it is when, when positive, it is extremely useful. Um, but because facet pain doesn't, or spondylosis pain doesn't always, uh, act up instantaneously with, you know, loading of those joints. I think it's, you know, a lack of a positive facet load doesn't mean that this is not facetogenic pain, right. But it is a part of uh, many guidelines. I know specifically, you know, when we think about like things like the MTUS and ODG, which are utilized uh, for workers' compensation, you know, they specifically ask things about, you know, positive pain with facet loading, um, which like I said, when it's there, awesome. But when it's not there, I, I don't particularly think that it's overly against facetogenic pain. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And uh, like I said, we'll just briefly mention this because we'll get into um, uh, this, the, the details of this uh, in, in much more extensively moving forward. But, you know, as always, when we're thinking about the treatment for uh, lumbar spondylosis with facetogenic pain being the primary pain generator, we always want to think about, you know, lifestyle, uh, uh, lifestyle modifications, diet optimization, exercise optimization, 
um, uh, therapies, uh, equipment, um, in terms of durable medical equipment, medications, procedures, um, are there any minimally invasive surgeries? We brought up the peripheral nerve uh, stimulation. Uh, and then, you know, as always, importantly, further diagnostic workup, uh, ruling out, you know, other processes uh, that may be present. Um, so uh, the only thing I'll, I guess I'll just mentioned here is, and we've, we've actually talked about a few of these different uh, uh, therapies, but, you know, in terms of the things that really have shown good uh, effectiveness and tried and true in terms of treating, treatment of facetogenic pain, obviously radiofrequency ablation uh, being one of those. And then um, uh, especially if patients are not responding to radiofrequency ablation and, or you do not think that the uh, uh, um, the ideal candidate for it for various reasons, maybe including their age, um, peripheral nerve stimulation of the medial branches is definitely something that's uh, growing evidence uh, in regards to having a positive imp impact for these patients too. Yeah. And the thing that you can't forget, and I know that we talk about this often, so I'm pretty sure none of you that are listening would ever forget this. Um, but the reason we do interventions, the reason why we have medications, the reason why we do, you know, any of these uh, procedures for patients is because we want to help people be more active. Uh, and that activity, you know, that building of the core strength, that working on the flexibility, really, especially when we're talking about things like spondylosis, uh, can be very, very helpful for patients, right? That is something that over the long run, the stronger that those deep core muscles are, uh, the more flexible they are. So they're not in constant spasm. So they're not uh, too tight and therefore causing abnormal strain across those uh, joints and discs. Uh, that is going to help them significantly in the long run. Even things such as weight loss. Uh, I know the data is much more um, well uh, versed when we talk about uh, weight across like the knee joints uh, with every pound of weight loss being four pounds. I know that there are similar studies for the low back that would suggest similar numbers, but you know, little bits of weight loss can uh, cause significant decreases in force um, in the low back. And all of that is the reason why we want to control the pain so they can do those exercises and those exercises and that consistent program is what's going to lead them to be more functional in life, right? What's going to allow them to do the things uh, that they truly want to do in life. Yeah, I think that that's a great point. And it's tough because, you know, especially when someone comes in and you, you do feel like that facetogenic pain is their primary issue. Sometimes the patient is frustrated and they're like, Hey, you know, I don't want, uh, they may call it a bandaid or I don't want, you know, I want to get to the, you know, root of the issue. The reality is, you know, we don't have a treatment that's going to take the arthritis out of their body or reverse it. Of course, you know, uh, things like uh, platelet-rich plasma and stem cells, which we've brought up in the past may have, you know, some positive effect in terms of uh, minimizing the progression of that degeneration. But the bottom line is uh, uh, arthritis is a natural process that we get as we go through life. And so I think that th what Dr. Hove has brought up is, is the key when we're talking to them that really, if you do want to try to uh, get to the root of the issue as best as possible, um, the foundation of that is going to be the optimization of the structures around the spine. Because in the way I put it to patients is the spine, just like any other structure, if you have a building, the better the support around that building, the less pressure on the individual elements. And that's you know really what we're trying to accomplish. Uh, like Dr. Hova said, the medications, the procedures, uh, the other interventions, that those are all great in terms of breaking the pain cycle, decreasing pain and inflammation. But the importance of that is then to allow the patient to get to a position where they can strengthen all the structures around the spine to put less stress in the joints. So it not only helps with their current symptoms, but helps prevent further degeneration down the road. Perfect. 
All right, guys. Well, that is our deep dive into lumbar spondylosis with including the pathophysiology and mostly the clinical presentation and the things that we see on a regular basis. Um, we will, as Dr. Carvello said, uh, be diving a little bit deeper into some of the interventions um, and kind of talk more specifically about you know what we normally see with patients as they present to us. Um, if you have any questions, reach out to us, uh, drop us a line. If uh, this was interesting or entertaining in any ways, probably less entertaining than it is educational, um, but we'll work on the entertaining part. <laughs> All right, everybody have a great day and stay tuned for those legal disclaimers. Now for that legal disclaimer, this podcast is for information and educational purposes only. It is not meant to be medical advice. If anything discussed may pertain to you, please seek counsel with your healthcare provider. The views expressed are those of the individuals expressing them. They may not represent the views of Spine and Nerve Diagnostic Center.